Well, grace, peace, and mercy be upon you on this third Sunday of Advent through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is a warning, however. What you're about to hear is a sermon about nothing. In fact, I, I must admit that because of circumstances beyond my control, this will be a, the most nothing sermon you've ever heard. I'm warning about this not to encourage blank stares and closed eyelids, although that happens anyways. No, I'm warning you because Elizabeth's life can be summarized with one word, nothing. Well, for most of her life anyways. Think about it. Elizabeth was unable to have children. Barren is the word used in the Bible for this, and Luke tells us that both Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were up there in age. When it came to having children, they were over the hill. When the angel came to Zechariah and told him they were going to have a son, he thought, start a family? Now? That ship sailed long ago. But in Luke verse 25, we learn that Elizabeth felt great reproach. For years, she had felt disapproval from God and from her neighbors and relatives. And in those days... Reproach or disapproval from God meant shame. Guilt and shame. What's the difference? Well, you know, there's some nuances between the two. Guilt is sin done by us, and we know what we've done wrong. We feel it. Shame is also sin done by us, and we know we've done wrong, but along with that is the knowledge and feeling that everyone else knows it too and disapproves of us. Historically, the Christian church has had, has had plenty to say about guilt, but not as much about shame. God cares, however, about the damage we do to others by sinning and the damage done to us. He cares about that. And His Word says a much, as much about shame as it does about guilt. God's Word addresses the sinner as well as those wounded by the sinner, which leads to shame. Now, the story of Elizabeth is about shame, at least the first part of her story. And sin can make us feel worthless like nothing, like Elizabeth. And shame in and of itself is shaming. It's a, a vicious circle or a uh, that one can feel like there's no way to jump off of. Just ask Elizabeth, a woman of a certain age, unable to have children. She seems doomed in her culture and society. She might as well have had a ticket on the Titanic or a seat on the Hindenburg. And why is that? Well, we don't know what she's, you know, we don't know what sins she's committed in her life that would make her feel like this. All we know is she feels like one big, unnoticed nothing. Not being able to have children was the consequence of her sin, or so she felt. Whatever the case, she was in the ranks of the shamed in Israel. There were others, after all. Sarai, who we heard about a couple of weeks ago, Rachel, Manoah's wife. Now, who's Manoah? 
We don't have time. Read Judges when you get a chance. And Hannah in 1 Samuel, she's also described as barren with no descendants. These women felt public shame. Now, in today's world, it's different. You know, when a couple are unable to have children, it's sad. It's frustrating. Hopes and dreams are lost. But there's no shame in it because it's not the mother's fault as a result of something she did. If God is, is truly indeed behind such a thing, then the reason and meaning for it are hidden and we just leave it at that. Nevertheless, we don't need to be in Elizabeth's situation to know what shame feels like. We felt it because we've lost the game, lost our job, lost our spouse, our house, lost our, lost our, our life savings, and everyone else knows it too. There are many ways we can experience public shame in our lives. But there's also private shame. Pushed to the edge by an abusive partner or berated by an angry parent or teacher. Man, I remember like it was yesterday when my first grade teacher told one of my classmates that she was the stupidest girl she'd ever known. I mean, even at six years old, I felt empathy shame for her. It was that bad. But try as we might, though, to shake it off our backs and pretend it isn't there, it doesn't work. We can still feel like one big nothing of a person. One day, however, for Elizabeth, that all changed. She became pregnant with her son, John. And what really changed for her, though, was the day Mary, her relative, showed up to visit. Mary was pregnant with God. Yeah, the Son of God, as promised. But the Son and the Father are one, aren't they? It's one God in three persons. She was pregnant with one of those persons, yet it was God nonetheless. And to make this point, Luke describes Mary's encounter with Elizabeth by recalling the time David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Both Mary and David arose and made the journey. Both go up to the hill country of Judah. David asks, how shall the ark of the Lord come to me? While Elizabeth asks, why should this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? The ark, blessed home of, or it blessed the home of uh, Obed-Edom, Again, we don't have time. Who is he? Read it. <laughs> so too, Mary's presence blessed Elizabeth's home. The ark and Mary remained in their respective places for about three months. You see, there's all these connections between the ark, the Old Testament, and Mary. The ark housed the tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, the word of God. Mary houses the Word in her womb. The Word became flesh. No wonder Elizabeth calls the child uh, in, inside Mary the Lord. She knows. So now we have Elizabeth, once shamed and ashamed, now she's rejoicing because of Mary showing up for a visit. 
with the Lord, safely in her as God's word was safely kept in the ark. The pain of the past is replaced with joy of new life. When Jesus came to earth, he continued to bring rejoicing to people in dire conditions who felt like nothing. His first miracle was the result of embarrassed hosts at a wedding looking at their supply of wine which had been dwindled to nothing. And then there was the widow at Nyan, Jairus, blind Bart, who we heard about a couple of months ago, the Canaanite woman, Zacchaeus, Mary Magdalene, Lazarus, the disciples who practically said, we have nothing to feed these people, and countless others who had nothing. Jesus shows up to replace nothing with blessing, to take away our guilt and our shame by becoming the lowliest of persons. He was nothing in the eyes of the empire, the king, the temple, and his own local synagogue. Even his neighbors in Nazareth would continue to think he was nothing despite word that had got, gone around about him. Shame is bad for us, but what is worse, or what was worse in the days of Jesus, was that his society had much stronger sense that a person could be put to shame by their peers, their family, their own townspeople. When you survey Roman literature from the era, you arrive at one conclusion. Punishment and death by crucifixion was meant to bring total shame on the victim, his family, and anyone else associated with him. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. Being in very nature God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, he put you and me first, accepting even the shame of crucifixion. It's a demonstration of who God really is. He shows solidarity with the shamed. Even Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It's because the King of Kings puts others before himself, even though he's kicked around and kicked from town to town like he's nothing. But the joy comes when nothing is multiplied beyond all hope. There is resurrection. Because Jesus is alive, God freely gives us the blessings of Christ's healing blood, which flows from his wounds. Feel shamed? Rejoice nonetheless. Our lives have been reversed from a course of self-destruction to everlasting life. We don't have to drink our shame away, work it away, explain it away, eat it away, or bury it away. Because in place of shame, Jesus gives joy. Elizabeth tells Mary, Look, when I heard the sound of your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. Jesus plus absolutely nothing equals absolutely everything. That's Elizabeth's story of waiting and rejoicing. And it's ours as well. Amen.